This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher filling it with song filling it with song they sound quite mad don't they it's happening I can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful God it's God I say God how do you like that why it's preposterous Thank you very much. My guest is Brooke Zaporin. He's the Mircea Eliade Professor of Chinese Religion, Philosophy, and Comparative Thought at the University of Chicago's School of Divinity, and the author and translator of several books. And his latest that we'll be talking about is Dao De Jing, a new translation of the over 2,500-year-old text. Brooke, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. As I mentioned in my email to you, Taoism was my first spiritual, mystical love from when I discovered the writings of Chuang Tzu in my freshman Eastern religion class in college. Oh, yeah. And his writings, or those writings, totally came alive for me. And at heart, I suspect that I'm still really more of a Taoist than anything else despite mm. my forays into other practices and actually very extensive forays into other practices in other traditions since then. I know what you mean. My trajectory bears some similarity to that, actually. I first encountered a translation of the Tao Te Ching, I think, in high school and soon after the Zhuangzi. And through a sort of circuitous course of events, that is really what motivated me to study classical Chinese, to learn to read those two texts. After that happened, I too have since forayed rather broadly, particularly within the array of classical Chinese writings in Chinese Buddhism, in Confucianism, that became accessible that way. And it's sort of been my own magical mystery tour, I guess, at this sort of semi-late stage to have this chance to do this translation. It's sort of coming full circle, an instance of the returns that uh, the Tao Te Ching is always talking about. Yeah, that's a very fascinating and very deep thing. I just recently read another book that actually quotes Jesus from the Gospel of Mary, talking mm. about the same principle where he's saying that what God wants is for us to return to our roots. Mm. And and while I was, after reading that and then reading your translation of Tao Te Ching, I realized they're talking about the exact same thing. Mm, yeah, that motif certainly has sort of endless applications and permutations in different types of spiritual literature. 
Yeah, it's very interesting how most of these ancient traditions are really talking about the same thing, just using different language, different imaging, and different conceptual ways of trying to convey that which is essentially ineffable. Mm. Yeah, right. And it's been very fascinating for me to sort of look at both the commonalities and the divergences that come from framing that sort of unsurpassable relation to what is beyond any specific concept or any specific limited experience or purpose manifests, you know. I mean, one thing that really drew me to the Taoist text when I was young was its sort of full frontal approach to that problem of ineffability, right? Just from the very first line of the Tao Te Ching, it comes right at you. I mean, I've spent a long time now looking at different ways to interpret that and try to contextualize it, but it's still always that basic problem. There's, it's the, you know, the finite embedded in the infinite and bearing a very intricately intimate and yet inexorably deferred relationship to it, you know? Yeah, it's presented in probably the simplest way mm. in our human history, and yet it is so easy to miss if you haven't had a direct experience of it. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's right. I don't know if you've had time to look at some of the accompanying material with this translation. There's an accompanying essay online. It's called The Minimally Discernible Position. And one thing I was trying to do there is sort of get at the substructure of this text. Because one of the interesting things about the Tao Te Ching is that it's been interpreted in so many different ways. Even in classical Chinese commentary, you know, it's been read and commentaries have been written about it. Some take it to be a text about government or about hygiene or yoga or this larger metaphysical sort of question. And all of that stuff you could say is in there, but it's also written in such a way that it's sort of open to any and all of those interpretations. Same goes for, you know, if you look at different English translations, and this is one of the reasons I got interested in learning the language so I could read it in the original, the translations differ quite radically, right? I mean, there's very different takes, and yet there's some sort of elusive consistency or shared tone or shared sort of gesture or, or tropes that I sometimes say, or maybe I say it in that essay, you know, it really doesn't have to be taking a specific position on, you know, any claim either that there is or there isn't this metaphysical source or this particular experience. It can absolutely work either applied to that or not applied to that. And that sort of deeper substructure is what I think is what's sort of so special about it. It can be applied in so many infinite ways. It's almost like a blank screen, but it's revealing something about what you know, what a screen is, <laughs> and from that, what any image is, what anything that might be projected on a screen would be. So one of the things I love about that text is it can be very specific, but it can also be very vague. And that allows the kind of roominess in it for different approaches. You know, it's got a lot of empty conceptual space in it, and it almost embodies or, or enacts what it's talking about, you know. Because precisely by its yielding and its giving of space that it generates its meanings. Yes. As I was preparing for this and thinking about this, my mind literally went in 
all of these different directions with me kind of helplessly sitting in the middle of it all going, uh-huh. oh. <laughs> so how, how do I do this? But for me, it's, it's pretty easy because I'm really interested in in the essence of it. But there are certain certain practical aspects of this that that I think are really well worth delving into. Yeah, and and I totally agree with you that there's some essential quality of of absence in mm. in this work that allows the space to really be filled by everything, by all that is can be encompassed within this living text, you could say a living text of no text. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think that's why this text keeps getting translated and retranslated and reapproached. As you said, this very ancient and seemingly very simple, pared down, indeed almost indeterminate thing, but it has this enormous power because it really does exemplify, open up that spaciousness that allows all things to grow in it, to be in it. I mean, in fact, even what you just said, I thought was quite apt, right? Which is, in a way, you know, reading the Tao Te Ching, you sometimes feel, I don't know what to do. What is this telling me? What is this telling me? I don't know how to think about this, how to interpret it, what it means. And yet, you know, there is that sort of systematic elusiveness that it's so good at, opens that space for some kind of new or renewed relation to the world that isn't simply a matter of doing, right? That's sort of its whole, its whole jam, right? Is this whole question of doing and non-doing and being, you know, the controlling of one's actions and the directedness toward a purpose. And by opening that space around it, just simply through reading it, you know, even through the act of not understanding it, that space of not understanding does something to everything else that one might come to understand. How I think of it. Yeah, it's so wonderful how this really allows for all of it to be fully embraced together without any sense of diminishing one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The relation of mutual exclusivity or, you know, conflict or opposition is actually, you know, a function of things being fully defined, fully constituted, having sharp boundaries around themselves, being completely determinate, right? And so when this kind of hollowing out and this sort of blurring that happens into the background or the, this background-foreground relation, as I like to think of it, these formerly conflictual entities, they, they don't cease to be there, but their clash or their mutual exclusion vanishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've always been drawn to that silent space. Mm. So I felt totally at home in the writings of Chuang Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. And in the Buddhist tradition, I found that it was the Dzogchen tradition that I felt most at home in because Mm. it didn't impose anything upon me so that I was free to just fully be in that space, that spaciousness, that that unspeakable spaciousness that has been spoken of and written of in wonderful poetic ways by different people in different traditions. Mm. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk to you. I mean, I I also have a great interest in Buddhism and have done a lot of work, especially in Chinese Tantai Buddhism. But, you know, the draw to Taoism is quite like that. I mean, I think a lot of people respond to this work because 
you know, every tradition has a certain baggage it brings with them. That's true of Taoism too, as it develops in China, you know, it becomes an institutional religion. It has its own dogmas and its own sort of strange sounding assertions, right, about how the world is, what is real. And I think often when people encounter mystical literature, this can be an obstacle, right? Because, you know, whatever associations you might bring or whatever you're being asked to believe, as you just said, whatever's being imposed upon you puts you in a different stance toward, you know, whatever the sort of heart or message of that text is. And, you know, they're usually presented as take it or leave it, the whole thing. The great thing about the Tao Te Ching, especially, and the Zhuangzi, is, yeah, they don't actually make any claim upon you or assert any, you know, fact of the matter that has to be believed or accepted or, you know, that sort of thrust down your throat. You know, it's more than just a gentle touch. It's literally that empty space is the main thrust or anti-thrust of these kinds of works. So it's one of the things that makes that the feel of these texts really unique. Yeah, and it made me think of this one particular chapter, I think it's 62, because it takes what most people would normally think of as being distinctions that are unquestionable, and it basically wipes that slate clean. Mm. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a lovely chapter, right? Yeah. Um, Since I yeah. brought it up, would you like to read that for us? Absolutely. That'd be a good <laughs> jumping off point for a few more maybe elaborations. Yeah. So 62. Of course, the innermost spout of the 10,000 things, the vanishing point whence and whither they are ever pouring, what is cherished by good men and what protects the bad. Beautiful words can be mere marketing. Lofty deeds can be irksome impositions. But the human bad, why should that ever be abandoned? So it is that when an emperor or duke is installed, rather than offering magnificent tributes of jade drawn by a team of horses, it is better to stay settled right where one is, thereby offering this course. What was the reason the ancients valued this course? Was it not that those who seek it always find it, while those who do wrong are through it freed from blame? That is what makes it the most valuable thing in the world. So I love that chapter. Like several others, takes up very explicitly this theme of the good and the bad, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's for me one of the key motifs in this book. Of course, we might also want to read chapter two here on that, right? Chapter two starts out by saying, when all in the world know the beautiful to be beautiful, there already is the ugly. When all know the good to be good, there already is the bad. And it goes on. I mean, this is a very complex and wonderful chapter, but I just want to bring that up and one or two more that explicitly talk about the good and the bad. Chapter 27 is another good example of that. Yeah, I was going to mention that if you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That is why the good are the teachers of the bad and the bad are the raw material of the good, right? I mean, this beautiful middle paragraph in chapter 27, in just this way our sage is so constantly good, so good at rescuing people, so good at considering them good, finding not one to be worthless, abandoning none. 
for being so constantly good, so good at rescuing things, so good at considering them good, not one thing is found worthless, not one is abandoned. So in a way, I almost think this is the key to the whole structure here, this relation between what is valued and what is not valued, what is neglected, you know, what is considered good and what is considered bad. And, you know, this text is, is so gentle, and yet it's also so subversive, right? It's so explosive in a certain way, because it's taking aim at the most fundamental, the sort of most basic structure of all our behavior and all our consciousness, which is sort of the singling out of the things we want, acting purposefully to try to maximize those things, and in the process, as it were, cutting them off from their relation to whatever it is in any given situation that we neglect or disvalue or dislike or are trying to avoid, right? And, you know, sometimes I sort of uh, provocatively like to say, you know, basically the Tao means something like garbage, you know? It means trash. It means whatever you're not looking for, whatever isn't in your sights, whatever you consider useless. You may remember that's a big theme in the Zhuangzi, right? The use of the apparently useless. And so I like to think of it in terms of, you know, there's a, a way in which our desire singles out things and then gives them sharp boundaries, defining them, determining them, and thereby cutting them off from sort of the real source of their growth and their actual, actually the real source of their value, which paradoxically lies in what we consider useless or what we consider worthy of neglect or indefined or vague or, you know, absent. So rather than thinking of sort of a specific entity called the Tao, you know, the course, the way, you can work backwards and just say whatever it is you're paying attention to or whatever you think to be the case, whatever you're desiring, whatever you see as the purpose of your life or your activity, Tao is everything else, <laughs> is whatever is not included in there, is whatever, I, I sometimes think it's easy to think of this in terms of, you know, the way our perception works with a foreground and a background, right? We focus on something, and when we focus on it, everything else gets sort of blurry and indefined and, and sort of uh, watercolored out in the background. And of course, we constantly experience that shifting with the foreground fading into the background and the background re-emerging as new forms. And, you know, the problem we sometimes run into is that we sort of rigidly define those foregrounded things as the sole value. And once we do that, it can attempt to sever them. That's the last line of chapter 28, I always think, is another great summation. I'll just read you the very last line there. The vastest of all structures is formed by the great cutting and carving that severs nothing, in uh, my translation. So cutting without severing, you know, which is to say things emerge, but they remain attached. And, you know, it just has to be remembered that when we say a thing, we're talking about a valued thing, right? Something someone is calling good and pursuing as good or making into a purpose of their action. Yes, 28 is another one of my favorite chapters in this. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely key. Um, I'm happy to read aloud any of these if you want me to. I mean, Yeah, 28 is wonderful. There's, there's a lot in it. Well, 
I'll read out 28 and then I'll give you some of my thoughts about that. And then I'd love to hear your takeaway too. How would that be? That'd be great. Chapter 28. To know the masculine while also maintaining the feminine is to be a channel for all the world. Being a channel for all the world, the power of what is constant remains undivided, a reversion to the state of a newborn child. To know the lucid while also maintaining the opaque is to be a microcosmic model of all the world. Being a model of all the world, the power of what is constant remains unwavering, a reversion to the boundlessness of utmost absence. To know the honorable while also maintaining the disgraceful is to be a valley for all the world. Being a valley for all the world, the power of what is constant remains ever sufficient, a reversion to the unhewn. When the unhewn gets shattered, it is made into vessels and tools, each with its purpose. But as instead used by a sage, it is what has seniority over all such functionaries. For the vastest of all structures is formed by the great cutting and carving that severs nothing. So it's a great place, I would think, for anyone to start if they want to you know, try to make some inroads into dwelling together with this text because so much is in this chapter. You notice that there's three pairs of contrasts, right? Masculine, feminine, lucid, opaque, honorable, disgraceful. And all of these are what I was just describing as sort of value-disvalue pairs in the context of early Chinese society, right? So, you know, of course, rightly or wrongly from a modern perspective, it's assumed that the readership is assuming that the masculine is what is to be pursued instead of the feminine, right? And that lucidity instead of opacity and honor instead of disgrace. And of course, the text famously emphasizes, on the contrary, all those so-called negative values, right? I sometimes just in the accompanying essay will do this in terms of just A and B. A, the valued things, B, the disvalued things and the playing out that relationship. So here it's interesting that it's to know the masculine while also maintaining the feminine. So there's a slightly different relation to the two. This is echoed again in chapter 52, where the subject matter is the mother and the sons, to know the sons, but maintain or keep hold of the mother, to maintain the valued, to know it, to be aware of it, to let it come forth, to let it be there, but without discarding, without separating, or as the chapter says, severing it from, it's opposite. Not only it's sort of conceptual opposite, but it's value opposite, the very thing you're trying to get away from in purposive behavior. And then in all three cases, right, doing that, whether it's masculine versus feminine or lucid versus opaque, or honorable versus disgraceful, holding both ends in this way, in this slightly different manner, holding as opposed to knowing, is to be a channel for the world, a microcosmic model of all the world, or a valley for all the world. There's a complicated textual history about this chapter, which I won't go into, but you notice these references to an open space, a channel, or a valley, something that is 
empty, that is low in the case of the valley, but toward which all things flow, which draws things to it, like we were talking about the empty space or screen, right? Waters are drawn to it precisely because nothing is there. It's another great theme of the Tao Te Ching. And in fact, lowness and emptiness, just like femininity and disgrace and opacity, are negative values in the conventional world in which this text was written. And they have this quality of being a channel, that is something that allows, not something that creates or makes things happen, or wills them or forces them, but that allows them, opens a space for them, and that gives them room to move, gives them room to expand, to pass through. And after all, Tao means way or road or course, and a course just is an empty space, right? A course is a space to pass through, a space that allows, a kind of infinite allowing. And so maybe the best metaphor is the one that comes in the third stanza here, a reversion to the unhewn. So there's an interesting background to this. This is the term pu. You will see it in maybe other translations, the uncarved block or simplicity. And it literally means like the raw material from which what the next line refers to as vessels or tools get carved. So there's a metaphor of this carving out. It goes back to you know what I was saying before about the foreground and the background. Our experience carves certain things out of this welter of formless and semi-formed and forming and deforming experiences. And we do that according to a value. So you know, unhewn uh, vessels and tools means things with a definite purpose. It really refers to, you know, as if you were to carve, maybe, you know, there's a background against this sort of Confucian notion of ritual here, where a vessel would be used for ritual purposes. So you might need to carve, let's say, a goblet out of this wood. So you have the unhewn wood on the one hand, and you have this goblet, this tool, this vessel on the other. The vessel is carved by your desire or your purpose, and what it leaves behind is the unhewn, right? And this is what I I really spend a lot of time trying to untangle in the online supplement to this, this relation between the the hewn, the cut out, and the unhewn, because it's very interesting. On the one hand, you know, when you carve something out of a, a formless space, although you're just trying to create the vessel, you're at the same time creating something else, which is the leftover, you know, the, the scraps on the floor, which you now can call useless garbage. But once you've made that division, if you try to describe what there was before the division, you really can't point to the goblet, to the cup. You have to point to the chips of wood on the floor and say, before it was carved, everything was like that. So there's a kind of double meaning to the, to the leftover, the background, right? Which means on the one hand, you know, the male is the opposite of the female, and the lucid is the opposite of the opaque, and the honorable is the opposite of the disgraceful. But in another sense, those B category items, those disvalued, those things that are like the leftover scraps, are what include both the masculine and feminine, the lucid and the opaque, the honorable and the disgraceful. They're the source of both. And in fact, the goblet is always made of that raw material, even when it is seemingly opposed to it in that cut-up form. So, you know, it's weird, right? B is the opposite of A, but B also includes A and B. 
But in another way, you could say B is beyond both A and B. It's really neither of those two. It's not the scraps on the floor, right? It's absolutely beyond conception in terms of either of the opposites, yet it includes both opposites. But the Daraging special kind of approach is to, is to get at that specifically through the B item, the feminine, the empty space, the lowly, the opaque, the disgraceful, right? Because it has this sort of special structure. And that's why I think it goes on to say, you know, the power of the constant, what is constant in that, whether cut or uncut, even in the opposition, unseparated, undivided, unwavering, sufficient, unhewn, boundlessness of utmost absence. You can see how unhewn and utmost absence are parallel. They mean the same thing. The unhewn is empty of the goblet forms that are carved out of it. It is formless with respect to them. And so it speaks of when the unhewn gets shattered. That's when it is made into purposeful, separated things. But in this chapter, because it affirms both the A and the B, the value and the value, it says, as in, instead used by a sage, it is what has seniority over all such functionaries. So the seniority just means it has this condition of being always prior to, always grounding them always present in them. And that's why I think that last line, that last stanza is so poignant and perfect, right? I mean, I'm trying to capture a bit of a pun going on in the Chinese, but the vastest cutting, the great cutting, but the word cutting there has a knife radical in it. But it's also used to mean something like a structure or even if there's a, a kind of reference to institutions or formed things. The greatest structure with all its cutting cuts, carves, things emerge, but it never severs anything. It never absolutely separates something from its roots. And before I ask you to comment on that, Tony, I, I want to go back to chapter five, if we could. It's a very notorious chapter and may seem sort of distantly related to this, but you know, this is the chapter that says, heaven and earth are not humane. To them, all things are straw dogs. The sage is not humane, to him all things are straw dogs, but is not the space between heaven and earth itself like a bellows? Empty it is, but never exhausted, with each and every movement more and more emerges, where instructions are many blind alleys multiply, maintain instead the center within. So I want to just say a remark about the straw dogs and humaneness. Because again, humane is a value, is one of those A items, like the carved out vessels, something that the contemporaries of this text in the Confucian ranks were actively pursuing, purposefully trying to be virtuous or to be humane or benevolent. And it's sort of shocking, right, that the Tao Te Ching then says, heaven and earth are not humane, and to them all things are straw dogs. Now, straw dogs are very interesting things. They were effigies that were made for a certain kind of local ritual, you know, where you would take straw or grass lying around and you would sort of tie them together, make them into the shape of this animal. That animal would go on an altar, would be worshipped and sacrificed. But then when the ritual was over, they're just thrown away and they're just returned to the grass, okay? Then they're trampled on. We have a description of this in the Zhuangzi. So when he says all things are like straw dogs, we're talking about this process of coming from formlessness, coming from valuelessness, 
assuming value, shape, definition for a brief period, and then returning to formlessness and to valuelessness, right? From non-benevolence to benevolence to non-benevolence, from purposelessness to purpose to purposelessness. You know, this is this motif of return we were talking about. And, you know, what's so intriguing about that is all our lives we do this, right? I mean, I used to be a little baby crawling around on the ground. I couldn't talk. I couldn't walk. I had no, you know, consciousness of where I was. And then gradually I became, you know, started to have an identity and a personhood and I could do all these things and I, you know, interact with the world. And then, of course, I'm going to go back to not being able to walk or talk and, you know, (laughs) drooling and then eventually back to total formlessness. And yet the chapter then goes on and says, but the whole space, there's that space again between heaven and earth is like a bellows. And the more it moves, the more it emerges from this emptiness. So it's a kind of creative void, a void of values even, a void of benevolence that produces benevolence, that produces consciousness, not from consciousness to more consciousness, but even the unconscious or the formless and blossoming forth sort of flowers from dirt and back to dirt. So the A and B in chapter 28 sort of follow this same structure, right? From feminine to masculine to feminine, from disgrace to honor to disgrace, from opacity to clarity to opacity. And it's the affirmation of that dark side, you might say, and the hidden value of that dark side that is so central, such a central thread through this text. And we could even jump to chapter 48 and its relation to the work of learning. Oh, exactly. Absolutely learning as daily addition, but the work of the Tao is daily subtraction. And and the notion that in that process, as you were talking about, we start out as these newborn babies, and then we gradually learn to be an individual self, and we go to school and we learn. And then at a certain point, after we've learned so much and we've, we've gained so much knowledge, then becomes the profound elder work of unlearning, of unraveling all of that stuff that we've added upon ourselves, that we've loaded upon ourselves, which becomes this this lifelong baggage that we drag along with us that Mm. makes it so difficult to see the empty space, the essential nature of everything that, you know, from which everything arises out of. Absolutely, right. Yes, this, the work of unlearning is a beautiful way to put it, right? Yeah, to do less and less, daily decrease as the work of the Tao. And as you say, right, it's a return to that prior state, but it's also a getting in touch with something that is always there, just as the raw material is always there in the vessel, right? But the untangling of it, that's the tricky part, the divesting of it or the reconnection to that dimension, The formless, even within the formed, right? Yeah, and divesting ourselves of all the things that our our society and our culture values. Exactly. And I love that you use the term subversive, because I think it's it's the subversive nature of Taoism that rang so true for me, and that that really made, made a beautiful, spacious home for me, for my deeper sense of, of the way things really are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's almost subversiveness itself, because, you know, this text 
has such a soft touch in a way, but it is so contrarian. It almost doesn't matter what those values are, what those socially imposed values, those forms that eventually kind of rigidify around us, whatever they are, just by virtue of being valued and clung to in that way is sort of going to be undermined by this text, right? It is about the very structure of having anything at all filling that space once and for all. So any social values, I mean, this is, I know, a question of relevance, you know, and the text has been read sort of politically that it's been read in every possible way. That's what's so sort of magical about it. I mean, it is very subversive and it will be subversive of any any system that is ever created, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, whatever new system is put in place, there will always be this hum of formlessness under it that we're in danger of losing touch with. And that subversiveness is so essential because we always have this tendency to become attached to one side of the equation or the other. And no matter what it is, there's almost an infinite number of ways of rationalizing one position or another. And the only effective way to undermine that is to completely undermine it categorically, which is what the Tao Te Ching and, and these writings do so beautifully if you're open to that. Yes, I couldn't have said it better. Categorically, key word, because it really, you know, if you read through this text, one chapter after another, one poem after another, it's taking aim, if you will, at completely different things, just juxtapose sort of these sharp left turns from one topic to another. And it really is a way of, you know, bringing forth that structure itself so that anything could be plugged in there. It's not a critique of some specific values. It's a critique of valuation per se, you know, of form and definiteness and a cutting that severs the kind of attachment and addition and identifying that severs from its own background, whatever the content might be, right? That's why I say it's almost like subversiveness itself. Um, I mean, one thing I also wanted to talk with you about is, you know, another reason I love this text is because, you know, obviously, once you make that move with such a broad, you know, not merely a critique of this and that, but a critique of not only all values existing, but all values that could exist, um, you're obviously going to get into the realm of paradox. Because, you know, what do you do with this, you know, if you just directly state, okay, don't be attached to anything. This is, a, this is an interesting problem we encounter in Buddhism too. Then not being attached can just become the value that you're attached to, right? Exactly. Right. And so you look, I mean, one thing that always fascinates me looking at all these various traditions is how they approach that problem. And, you know, they're not the same. They, they do it differently and they have different kind of strategies, you might say. I mean, in Buddhism, if I can give a little sidebar on that, I mean, you know, one is quite ingenious and quite self-aware on this, even from the very earliest Buddhist texts. I'm sure you're very well familiar with, you know, the parable of the raft, right? So in the parable of the raft, the Buddha says, you know, the Dharma, my teaching and all these practices and all these concepts are like a raft. They're for crossing over the river, but not for carrying once you get to the other side, right? They're temporary means. And that means that, you know, you have a nice structure there that can explain, well, 
yeah, you do have to desire maybe the Eightfold Noble Path or desire to be free of desire, you know, just like you need to cling temporarily to a raft to get to the point where you can give up the raft. That's a Buddhist approach. In my opinion, you know, it's quite fascinating the way in later schools of Buddhism, in the Mahayana and in Tantra, there are new permutations. There's ideas of upaya, skillful means, conventional truth that kind of develop from that sort of basic structural idea. And I think that works perfectly well. It's quite consistent in its own way. But the Taoist approach is a little bit different, right? Because, I mean, one thing you see in the Tao Te Ching, almost at the level of style and the actual rhetorical form of it, is it's sort of, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, it's sort of systematic elusiveness. It's resistance to being pinned down, you know, to giving a clear, straightforward instruction. Early Buddhism does that, right? It says, here's what you need to do, do this, do this, do this. And then it says, but that's all a raft, so don't cling to it once you can surpass it. But the approach in these Taoist texts sort of goes at it from the other end and will keep flip-flopping on you. I mean, this is even more true in the Zhuangzi, perhaps, which is such a lively literary work that, you know, approaches things from all these different angles, one after another, juxtaposed, sort of gives you a, a lot of different inroads, so it never really settles into any one of them. And whenever you think you've got it kind of nailed down, it will slip out from between your fingers and hit that thing from the reverse. So it exemplifies that reversal, even in the way it presents its ideas. There's even sometimes, you know, one of the things that's also fascinating to me in the Tao Te Ching is it will play on the paradox, right? It'll say, do non-doing, right? Something that almost exacerbates the paradox there. And that is one more among many approaches to confronting this sort of systematic elusiveness, not only of the text, but of, let's say, of the world. Yes. And I, I just love the way the Taoist principle of essentially just pulling the rug out from under everything in one foul swoop. In, in the Buddhist tradition and some others, there's a lot of effort in using the ego and the intellect to, in, a, in very systematic ways to undo the ego and the intellect. Right. And <laughs> for someone like me, it's like, yeah, I went through some of that. And underneath it all, I just, you know, I still, you know, had this echo, this, this distant echo of the Tao's approach and, mm. and just feeling like, why all this construction and work to mm. just undo things? But, but I do understand the value that we live in a very intellectual culture, a culture that values the mind and thinking. And the ego is one of those tools, one of those structures, like the raft, that yeah. it's a vehicle that that gets us and allows us to accomplish things in this world. And one thing that the Taoist principles repeat over and over again is, that's okay. The ego, you know, no matter what it does, it's not to be diminished. Yes, I completely agree. Right. And that chapter we just read, chapter 28, and I also mentioned 52, is a great example, right? Know the masculine, know the lucid, know the honorable. They're not rejected. They are one more phase in that bell curve. They are the straw dogs, right? And I completely agree, too, about, you know, yes, I understand exactly. I, I'm in deep admiration of, you know, again, I've spent a lot of time with uh, Buddhism as well. And, you know, really working with 
the ego in a certain way and to say, well, you, you can't just get rid of desire by fiat and you can't just say, stop having desire, stop being attached. Oddly enough, you have to do it through being temporarily attached to one thing, maybe remedially to something else. But there are dangers that come with that, right? And, and there are sort of proliferations that, and, you know, I think the Buddhist tradition has its own ways of dealing with that, the various Buddhist traditions. But that is something that's so astonishing about the Taoist text, because they just have this way of, yes, being much more allowing of all those sort of plus side values, but at the same time having this, as you put it, this rug pulling ability through the force of their very unusual literary rhetorical approach. So, I mean, it's quite a ride to go through the Tao Te Ching. You really are taking a lot of sudden left turns and the bottom drops out all the time and everything flips over halfway through a thing, you know. It's one of the things that makes it kind of endlessly sort of inexhaustible. You can't really draw a circle around it. Right, because the circle is encompassed in all of it as well as the space around the circle. Exactly. When you, you, any circle you draw, it's on the other side of that circle, you know, in the outside space. Yeah. And in chapter 23, there's the line, merging with and gaining from the loss. Oh, gosh, yes. Merging, emerging with virtuosity and merging with loss as equally delightful. And yes. that whatever we merge with brings gain and delight. So again, including the negative and the positive values. Oh, yeah. That is one of my, another, yet another of my favorite chapters in this, right? And such a gloriously tangled little sequence in just those few lines. But yeah, right. Joy in the gain of the loss. And it takes you through that step by step, you know, first from virtuosity itself, right? It's playing on all kinds of punning there, but. And maybe it would be a good idea for you to talk about because you use the term virtuosity a lot throughout yes. this, and and it seems to have a range of meanings. Yeah. Well, there are a couple things I could say about considerations that went in there. I mean, yes, I, I translate Tao as course, and I translate de, so the title of the book is Tao de Jing. Very old translations will just say the canon of the way, Tao. And it's power, duh, or sometimes it's virtue, duh. That word duh means virtue. But it's virtue in a kind of very broad sense. I mean, even the English word virtue still has this meaning, right? This sort of morally neutral meaning, as we say, by virtue of the power invested in me or something, right? Or a little more old-fashioned, the virtue of a medicine is to do. It means the power of it. It's effectivity, and so I have a note in the note on the translation on, you know, some of the background of why to translate it that way. But virtue and virtuosity, obviously, are very closely related too. But virtuosity has this broader meaning a little more forefronted as the skill in doing something or an effectivity that has become effortless, right? You know, in the first instance, that would mean something practiced, and that's the you know, the kind of straight meaning that it's playing against. But in these Taoist works, it comes to mean something, as that other translation suggests, like power. So there is almost like life force, you'll even find some people translate this same, you know, the thing that allows something to operate without effort, without knowledge, like the way you're beating your heart right now. 
you have some kind of an ability there, but you're so good at beating your heart and circulating your blood that you don't even have to think about it. It's not something you do purposely. It's sort of that space of being, you know, in sports or in music in the zone where things start to happen spontaneously. So I like to use that word virtuosity, which carries embedded in it the idea of virtue, but is doing something like what the Taoists are doing to the kind of straight Confucian meaning of the term, where it does mean something more like proficiency in moral practice. Well, now we take away the sort of moral practice idea. It's, it's the practice of losing rather than gaining. And we get down to the, you know, another key term, wei or non-doing, at the root of all effectivity. So that's part of the, maybe the consideration that goes into that translation. Um, I like course for a similar reason, because, you know, if you get a chance to read some of the prefatory material, there's another thing you see going on, a beautiful technique, you could say, in the way this text is written, where it takes an old saying, or it takes a found item in the culture, and it subverts it just by looking at it more closely or by thinking it through or by placing it in a new context. So all these positive terms, like you remember those chapters that say emperors and kings call themselves orphans and destitute and so on, right? And the, that actually, you know, is a ritual term in ancient China. And they use that language because, you know, it's meant to be a polite way to say, oh, I'm so sad my father's dead. That's why I'm the king. So I'm an orphan, right? So here I am, the emperor, the royal we is sort of the orphan one. And the Dao Jing will pick up on things like that, that are floating around and said, isn't that interesting? There's this word for the lowest of the low, the worst possible disaster, the loss of losses, which is also a word for the highest exaltation, right? And this is similar even to the word course, Dao, because before the Dao De Jing, before the Taoist sort of even, you know, maybe revolution, if you like, that word had a very specific meaning. It was any, any course, like a course of action, or even a course like a syllabus, a, a system of practice to attain a particular goal. So, you know, you could have the Tao of archery. We still say this, right? All the martial arts still use this word, Aikido. That Do is the same as Tao. Taekwondo, that Do is the Korean same character, Tao. Tao of flower arrangement, Tao of charioteering, Tao of government. Tao of benevolence, Tao of heaven and earth. It means the way they do what they do, but it has a kind of, you know, prescriptive normative meaning originally, a specific Tao. If I want to become a good charioteer, I go find a teacher and I study the Tao of charioteering. So it's quite ironic that the word originally means sort of purposive action, very, just like we were just talking about, like the Buddhist case, where there's a, a kind of linear step-by-step -step thing study this, keep your goal in mind, and, you know, there's a means-ends relation there. It's exactly what they'd say, yo way, doing. It is the word par excellence for doing. And right there in the first lines of the Tao Te Ching, Tao Ke Tao Fei Chang Tao, you know, a course that is taken as a course, Tao Ke Tao, is not a constant course. It's reversing that meaning. It's ironizing it, you might say. So it now becomes the word precisely for what is non-doing. The very word that most means doing in the whole language is in that first line being turned on its head so that it is now the word for the non-doing, the blank space, the straw dogs, the empty bellows, the valley that both subverts and supports 
all those kinds of purpose of doing. So I keep that word course in there because it has this broader meaning, right? Like I can say I'm taking a course in cooking and that really is very purposive ends and means, but I can also say the course of events or the coursing of blood in my veins or even the items in a sequence that is just happening, that neutral sense. So it's an attempt to sort of capture a little more explicitly that deliberate irony of the way that term is used. It's the most normative term, norm in the sense of a guiding. The, the word Tao is actually cognate with the word Tao, which means to guide. So it's a conscious, purposive activity originally. And it's now being used, these tricky Taoist texts, for the exact opposite, you know, where it's now the word for the non-normative par excellence, what is not a guide, right? What is sort of the subversion of any definite guidance of any plan or program or course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminded me of the title of one of Alan Watts's books on the Tao Te Ching, The Watercourse Way. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And the way right. water always flows down, 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 and into those empty spaces. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's a good title, and it combines the course and way with that key image. It's uh, chapter 8, the highest good is like water. And you notice there, too, very specifically, so deaf, so good at benefiting things by never competing with them, by putting itself where none want to go. So again, what is not valued, right? That flowing down, downwardness, right? It's funny that very metaphor is used in Confucianism to talk about sort of an innate moral propensity in human beings, striving toward what is valued. But the Tao Te Ching again turns this around and says, well, down low, you know, like empty is one of these negative disvalued terms. And that's water nourishes things, not competing. It doesn't block, right? It shapes itself wherever it goes into whatever shape it finds. And it always goes low, right? It goes against where everyone else is trying to get away from by growing, right? By moving up in the world, it's always going down. Right. While everything and everyone else is aspiring to yeah. water is descending to the most natural way of being. That's right. And in so doing, it's nourishing the roots of everything that rises. Yep. Again, another deeply subversive swipe at our cultural perspective of things. It absolutely is. So there's another line to, to take us in a slightly different direction. In chapter 29 is the line about the world cannot be stopped or controlled. Mm, yes. It's of a piece but that's stating it in the broadest way, right? That it's really this desire for control and the world always exceeding, doesn't matter what you're trying to control it to do. The main question is the doing itself, right? The purposive activity. And there's something counterproductive reversing on itself in the attempts to control through sort of, you know, brute force or willpower or purposive planning this thing, this world that operates through non-control, through its own exceeding of any one specific Tao or any one specific goal, any one specific purpose. So, you know, when you try to control something, you're trying to act purposefully. You have an aim, a goal, an ideal that you're trying to impose. 
just like carving out the vessel from the unhewn. But you're always, you may carve that vessel as well as you like, but in so doing, you are at the same time generating that excess, right? Those scraps of wood on the floor, which are revealing the sort of inner texture of even the thing that you've carved out. And when you get lost in that process, you end up with aspects of modern science and medicine where where they take living things and they have to kill it to do an autopsy and to Ooh. and to investigate it and also how science takes everything apart into pieces yeah to understand it but then they forget to put it back together to understand it as as a living whole yes yeah exactly and i mean a, a cutting that severs you could say right that does yeah. not maintain the the sort of web that connects them the thing that isn't the thing cut out right which are those connecting sort of formless, mushy fibers of things that allow them to connect. You know, chapter 11, right, famously begins with the 30 spokes around the hub of the wheel, right? And they're joined by this emptiness at the center of them, right? Where they veer off into formlessness is where they link, is where they join, and that alone is what gives them their function, their actual life. Yeah. Yeah. That empty space is really the essence of life. And earlier you had mentioned, I think it was in chapter 52, perhaps, where we're talking about the sons and the mother. Yes. And yes. and I'm assuming that means the sons are like the 10,000 things and the mother is, is the source of the 10,000 things. Yes. Yes, exactly. And the language used in that chapter is exactly the same as language in 28. It's not dismissing the sons, the 10,000 things, and whatever may be valued or carved, but just in that case, a reminder to remember that nourishing relation of rootedness in what precedes the sons, in the mother. You know, the mother image comes up many times in the book. It's in chapter one, and it also has a very fascinating, maybe the most beautiful chapter of the whole book is chapter 20, which ends on a kind of very sudden, sort of shocking, last image of the mother. Maybe I can read that one. Okay. Because uh, this is a tour de force, I think. And it's also one of the rare chapters that speaks in the first person. So it's really very intimate. So chapter 20 goes, Cut off study, the emulation of others, and all worries will cease. What is the distance between a yes, sir, and a yeah, sure? What is the difference between good and bad? But, they say, what other people respect, you cannot afford not to respect. It's a quote. How absurd, how far off point. For the mass of people are so happy and cheerful, as if enjoying a great festival, as if strolling the terraces in the springtime. I alone seem nervous and circumspect, unclear about which way to go like a clueless newborn not yet able to smile, all torpid and slack as if belonging nowhere. The mass of people all have more than enough. I alone seem lost and abandoned, my mind the mind of an idiot, a mass of muddle, this mind of mine. The ordinary folks are so bright and lucid. I alone seem to be so dark, so dim. They are so precise and clear, I alone am confused and bewildered, drifting around on what seems an ocean, blown along as if utterly unmoored. 
the mass of other people, they act with such purpose. I alone am a thing so dense and inert, so base and so low. I alone, unlike the others, see no value in anything but feeding at the breast of the mother. So I always think that's such a beautiful kind of surprise. And it's a very odd chapter in the Tao Te Ching. There's no other chapter like that that's so personal-seeming. And I mean, really drives home that sort of purposeless, drifting, almost forlorn character. But in that last little twist, connects it directly with feeding, literally feeding on the mother. So what we have in chapter 22, Sons and Mothers, comes up there in a really vivid way. Um, you know, it might seem sort of abstract and metaphysical in chapter one, this discussion of the mother of all things, that's in 52 as well. But it's this very intimate and visceral kind of rootedness that is nourishing. You know, I always think a very simple way, this is almost a cliche, but you know, that mother-son relation, that A-B relation, it's like flower and dirt, right? So, you know, we have desires for the flowers, the flowery part, and the dirt, you know, is manure, it stinks, it's very unflowery, it's the most unflowery thing. But of course, this again, this question of cutting, you know, the way desire and attachment tends to work is to, you know, when you recognize a good, you want it to be more and more purely that good, right? You want to eliminate the non-good as much as possible. And that that's basically like cutting the stem of the flower. Of course, as you were saying about vivisection, right, that's, that's actually killing the flower. And the other alternative to that is to make sort of a rootless flower, a plastic flower, right? The purest flower in a way, the kind of flower that has no dirtiness to it, will be, you know, the plastic flower, which is the non-flower. So, you know, that kind of absorbing nourishment from that lowest, dirtiest part or most forlorn and most sort of valueless part really circles around again and again in all these very creative different ways within this text. Yeah. And that reminds me of the lotus emerging out of the mud. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad that you read 20 because I had forgotten about that. And I can so relate to that chapter. And Ooh. that would have been a wonderful accompaniment for me during many phases of my life. <laughs> it's so funny you say that, Tony, because I was just thinking that too. Because as we were talking about how did this all get started, how did we get on this horse, I think it was that chapter in the first version of this that I read that just like knocked me over. And I had never seen anything like that, you know, that kind of an invocation and that sense of kind of bewildered driftingness as the sort of busy world goes on around you with all of its straight lines and purposes, right? I suppose it would appeal to a kind of a sort of adolescent alienation, which I suppose was part of the picture there for me. So that may be ground zero for me, that chapter. <laughs> yeah, it's such an utter contradiction from our typical self-help culture. Yeah, exactly, right? That's a great point, right? Because, you know, in those days I, I was, you know, adrift as many of us are, but of course, you know, I was keeping up appearances, <laughs> getting on with it to the best of my ability. But I was also, you know, definitely poking around and just randomly, you know, I, I, nobody introduced it to me. I just randomly came upon it. And it was so unlike, yeah, the self-help dimension and the sort of positive thinking, <laughs> the sort of get up and go side of things. 
And so it really struck a deep, deep chord for me. Yeah. For me, it, it sounded so autobiographical. Yeah, right? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Someone, someone else has been through this. Right? Yeah. I think a lot of people who are really deeply drawn to this type of spiritual and, and mystical understanding come from that kind of a unsettling and muddling background. Yes. Typically, you know, a so-called spiritual text will not wear that on its sleeve unless it wants to, you know, give you a kind of glorious happy ending right away, right? Like, you know, a shining light and sort of a, a transcendent vision of some kind, right? So there is indeed a turnaround there, if you look at it in context, in that reference to the mother. But it's very surprising, you know, a text that's supposed to be representing the voice of a sage, and the self-description is just so, so much the opposite of our sort of heroic picture of a sort of spiritual master, right? Yeah, and I would say that the Tao offers us no such promises of a positive outcome in relation to anything. Yeah, I know. That's, that's what I mean by like, you know, it's not asking you to believe, okay, if you do this, then you will be exalted or rewarded or, you know, break through to this glorious vision. I mean, it does, it does make this linkage between the A and the B values, right, in its own kind of subdued way, but it's definitely not like making any promises. It's just touching these uh, chords from one side or another, you know, without any sort of imposition of a belief structure, which would, after all, you know, and again, we, as we were referring to before, you know, that's always the problem in spiritual paths because, you know, they very quickly can become kind of spiritual materialism, right? Which is, I'm investing, you know, to gain treasure in heaven or something, right? And it becomes sort of the most purposeful and sort of calculating prudential sort of endeavor. And since the Tao Te Ching is really trying to pinpoint that structure itself, no matter what the goal, I mean, that's another way to put it is that, you know, the Tao Te Ching doesn't make any distinction between spiritual goals and material goals when it comes to purposive action. That's why it has this, you know, sometimes surprising kind of anti-morality language, right? Because any path that is, you know, pursuing any goal, whether it's transcendence or God or spiritual truth or goodness, is subject to exactly that same structure, right? It's still cutting up, cutting the flower if you're trying to get the good. The perfect good is the plastic flower, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, that was another thing that I loved about Tongsa is the way he would continually undercut Confucius. Yes. <laughs> And of course, Confucius represents our culture and our society that we live in and all the positive aspirations and, yes. and all the things that those of us who, whether by choice or not, found their home in that muddle. Mm. Yeah, that really spoke to me in, a, oh, yeah. in, a, in such a powerful, affirming way. Well, the Zhuangzi, which I also translated a couple of years ago, you know, is is super fascinating on that front because Confucius appears in there, yes, often satirized brutally and very humorously, but then sometimes, again, another kind of undercutting, the Zhuangzi will flip it around and make Confucius start spouting kind of Taoist-sounding language and kind of being the spokesman for the Taoist position, which makes it even funnier, right? Because he's saying the kinds of things you would never expect Confucius to say. So, you know, it's a, it's a very subtle sort of rhetorical strategy there. 
I mean, that's another thing that's worth talking about in Taoism that's also quite rare in spiritual texts. You don't see it that much in the Tao Te Ching, although uh, I'm referring to humor. I mean, the mm-hmm. Zhuangzi is quite funny, and that's no accident, I think, because this kind of subversion we've been talking about, you know, where the incongruity or the flip-flopping or the multiple meanings of something, the ironic reverse meaning of something comes out, is intrinsically humorous, you know? So even though the Tao Te Ching is, you know, it's a different kind of touch than the Zhuangzi, where that really comes out, but there's still, there is a kind of humor in the Tao Te Ching, very subtle. It's often using terms in their kind of ironic reverse sense, you know, by framing them in a certain way. In fact, isn't it chapter 41, which has a really funny passage? I love that one too, yeah. Yeah, when the highest type of gentleman hears the chorus, he diligently puts it into practice. When the middling type of gentleman hears the chorus, he sometimes keeps it and then sometimes loses it. When the lowest type of gentleman hears the chorus, he simply bursts out laughing. And then the key line is, anything that causes no laughter cannot be considered the chorus. (laughs) So, you know, that's another brilliant line because it kind of cuts both ways, right? First of all, you have this hierarchy, high, middle, low, and the laughter there sounds like it's saying, oh, he's so like unattuned. The first take is to say, you know, this will sound ridiculous to normal people, of course, right? And if it didn't sound ridiculous, it wouldn't be the way. It wouldn't be the course. It has to be subverting the expected values. But then the further twist on that is that, you know, as we've been discussing within the Tao Te Ching, the lowest is actually the preferred position, right? So again, you have a kind of a twist. Yeah, the lowest in the sense that these are the most conventional-minded people who don't even take this seriously, but they laugh, and that lowliness there does become the real mark of what is genuinely the way. If, it, if there were no laughter, it wouldn't be the course. Yeah, there's this deep sense of inseparability between these different divided senses of quality and judgments and values. And yeah. also with the humor, it's like we need humor to help us escape the nearly continual traps that we tend to fall into, you know, when we aspire to a spiritual path. Yes. I mean, it's so true, right? I mean, in a way, you take a step back and you kind of think, how is it that more spiritual texts are not humorous? I mean, you know, Zen texts are, right? They inherit this tendency from the Taoists in China and in Japan. But Generally, right, they tend to be deadly serious, right? But floating in this kind of a soup here with the Taoist approach to this, it's inevitable, it's central, right? The very non-containability, this flip-flopping, this reversal return, why is it so often overlooked as a way to unsettle and dislodge and reduce and empty out, you know, the sort of deadly, serious, conventional way we tend to look at the world and at ourselves. Yeah, and there's a chapter that has a verse that speaks to that directly, where the sage talks about, while everybody else goes off in one direction, the sage seeks or goes in the direction that nobody else notices. Right, right. And, you know, that sort of element of surprise or the unnoticed or the kind of, you know, point of contact with its opposite, right? Isn't that really the essence of humor? You're trying to do X, and by doing X, it turns into non-X, anti-X. It's almost slapstick, the Taoist path, right? 
you wonder why it's not more broadly utilized sort of avenue into the spiritual. Yes, exactly. And some of the greatest comedians talk about how comedy is meant to shock us. Yes. Yes. I mean, in that state you're in, that there is that kind of loss of self in deep laughter, where it's something beyond your control. You know, it's one of those things that you do not do on purpose. It's this thing in you that is more you than you in a way, so fundamentally in you, but it takes you by surprise that your body convulses in this way involuntarily in this sort of joyous release from, you know, your usual ways of thinking and viewing things. Right. And the experience when that laughter becomes so powerful that that you feel like you're on the edge of dying, literally dying from it. Yeah. And yet it's so ecstatic that the dying part is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Yes. I love that. Yeah, exactly. It totally eliminates you and all your concerns, but it is like what you are feeling the most directly and what you care about the most, you know? It's so deeply yourself that it's not yourself in a way. It's amazing that that form of, you could call ecstasy, right? is so little thematized in spiritual literature. Mm -hmm. We tend to make the spiritual path so serious. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I was curious to ask you about, if there's something about the Chinese language that lends itself to the kind of ambiguous and paradoxical nature of the Tao and the Tao Te Ching. Yeah, that's the kind of question I really love. So I hope you won't get more than you bargained for in this answer, but... (laughs) Absolutely. I want to be clear, I don't mean to imply that, you know, there's a strictly deterministic relationship between language and thought. I think of it more as, you know, it's kind of uphill and downhill slopes in languages where certain things are much easier to do than others. It doesn't mean the other things can't be done, but they require more effort and they're harder to sort of transmit generation after generation. So, you know, the classical Chinese language is indeed supremely ambiguous already. It doesn't have tense. It doesn't have number, singular, plural. It doesn't have gender. It doesn't have articles, a or the. It doesn't have tenses or declensions. It doesn't have different parts of speech, subjects, uh, nouns and verbs, and so on. Morphological changes, prefixes, suffixes, also doesn't have, like many ancient languages, doesn't have punctuation or capitalization or separation. Very often it is because it lacks those morphological markers to disambiguate what is used to sort of determine whether a word, for example, is meant as a verb or as a noun or as an adjective or an adverb. You just have to look at context. And sometimes that means you really can't understand one line until you read the next line. And then you see the structure kind of mirroring parallel between them and they kind of shift into focus retrospectively. So that's definitely one thing. And I mean, Chinese poetry really exploits that for some beautiful aesthetic effects. And it's one reason, if you look at translations of the Tao Te Ching, that they are so absurdly different, you know. That's why there are more translations of Tao Te Ching in English than any other book. Because you can divide up a sentence differently and take a different word to be the noun or the verb, to be singular or plural, or to be a definite, like, the Tao. There's no the, right? Or it could be a Tao, or it could be Tao's, plural, or it could be a verb, you know? So there are a lot of sort of decisions, and it's sort of contextualizing them that makes that work. 
But that means, if you think about it, if meaning is always determined contextually, that means meaning is never really closed or finalized once and for all, because you always could have more context coming. You know, I could write a, you know, 10 pages and be speaking and then have a word like yesterday. And suddenly all those verbs have to change into the past tense, but there's no change in the Chinese. There's no past, present, future tense. So there's always going to be that kind of open space. And that applies to this question of the formless and the formed too, because, you know, the words that we translate as being and non-being, so that's yo and u in Chinese, actually mean having and not having, possessing and not possessing. And because you don't really need a subject in a classical Chinese sentence, you can omit the subject. A funny thing happens with those verbs, which is that unlike any other verb, if I want to say ghosts exist, there's no word for exists. What I have to say is there are or possesses ghosts. In English, you just translate it as there are ghosts or something. But what that really means is that implicit before that, there's another unstated subject, which is something like the world or the universe. So what you're really saying is the universe has ghosts in it. But if you think about it, what that means is if you ask, does the universe exist, you're actually asking, does it have the universe? And you've already posited an even larger context. Every time you, you know, posit any formed thing, you've simultaneously posited the unformed thing around it or preceding it that in which it is. I mean, just grammatically. So I really do think that that, and this is not my original insight or anything, I take this idea from a sinologist named A.C. Graham, that to ask how did the universe come to be or does the universe exist is literally almost a contradiction in terms. You would be positing sort of a broader universe in which the universe exists when you say that. And so you're never going to have a first principle that is formed or definite without implying something else even further beyond it that would be less determinate than it. That's so wonderful. I love that. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it makes sense in that sort of incomprehensible way that I think people like you and I kind of thrive in. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So yeah, as I said, I got into doing this, you know, as a living, originally motivated by just that kind of perplexity, like reading different Tao Te Ching translations and going, wait, what? How can these translations of the same text, you know, like, you know, these kind of things about it, like, how can you have a language with no tense and no like verb now, you know, how can that even make sense? And so, you know, it got very interesting to look at how sort of meaning formation actually occurs in this sort of thoroughgoingly contextual way and that oh yes it does work but it works differently and you know what feels like a sentence making sense is a sort of different experience in that language i still love working in classical chinese so from your experience of the chinese language and working within it and perhaps even thinking mm. in that language how does that change the way you think because with the Chinese language, it would force you to think contextually, while Western languages, particularly English and German, are attempting to be so precise that if anything, it's doing its best to take out all contextuality and make everything so objective in this sort of cutting and severing that leaves everything completely separate and disconnected. Yes, exactly so. It has a huge effect, and you're not at all wrong. There is something like that. I find this in the work of translation, but also in trying to write about 
say, Tiantai Buddhism, things that I can think in Chinese, in classical Chinese, I have to sort of translate into English. And then suddenly what seemed to have made sense to me, or what does make sense to me in that sort of root language, is often very, very difficult to, it becomes an obstacle that you are forced to disambiguate words, and then like the logic of the passage disappears. That was really one of the things I was very attentive to in doing this translation, because sometimes it depends on the broadness of that meaning is going to serve as a pivot between several different senses that are shifting as the context is shifting. And in English, you have to make a choice early on. Is this singular or plural, for example? There's no neutral for that. You got to do it one way or the other, but you don't have to do that in Chinese. And the word can reappear in the next sentence and already have shifted, but that will be lost if you have to shift to a different word in English. So yes, it definitely, in fact, in the intro to this, this is kind of a joking way to refer to this, but you know, I say something like the classical Chinese language is one of the most proficient at evading disambiguation <laughs> because, you know, too often I think this is approach from the other side, you know, it's almost disparagingly like, oh, it's not precise enough. But I wanted to indicate that this is a strength of the language. It is able to evade certain kinds of pernicious disambiguations. And it does also lead to that kind of humor, because think about it, it's like what a pun is in English, right? It's a word that means different things in different contexts. And that means in isolation, if you ask, what does this just mean? There really is no one answer. It's changing and yet not changing. You know, this is a theme that becomes very useful for later Chinese Buddhists when they try to describe things like original enlightenment, for example. I'm sure you're familiar with this idea, you know, the idea that everyone's already a Buddha. And so nothing has to change when you attain enlightenment. And yet everything changes, right? That seems like a paradox and impossible in a highly disambiguated language. But it's what's going on every second when you read a classical Chinese text, you know? The word is the same, the figure is the same, but as it's recontextualized in a different way, even without changing in the least, everyday life, exactly what you were doing before, your old self is now also this completely other type of entity, you know? So it sounds like the Chinese language allows enough space to be more alive, whereas the Western languages, particularly, again, English and German, do its best to dissect and thereby take the life out of everything in order to intellectually understand everything and thereby ultimately failing in its entire endeavor. Yeah, I mean, again, I would say there are workarounds in every language. And that's what I'm trying to do in the translation, you know, not always succeeding, of course, but, you know, different rhetorical forms develop in English, certainly that, you know, try to bring life to that, but they have to work against the grain a bit more. You know, it's the very idea that a word simply possesses this thing called its meaning, just sitting there, standing alone, that sort of in it, because you add beauty, beautiful, beautify, you add these pieces, and now that meaning is right there in it. It allows you to kind of neglect, well, those don't mean anything by themselves. They're still contextual, right? Because why does phi mean a process and why does ing mean a, you know, there's nothing in that sound that means that. But it gives this illusion that these are sort of self-standing meanings that could be separated from one another. Right. Getting back to the straw dogs. Yes. Right. Exactly. But I, I should stress also, you know, this is much more true of classical Chinese than of modern Chinese. Modern Chinese still has a lot of ambiguity, but it has a different grammatical structure. 
So many of those things are, are less true for modern Chinese. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, wonderful conversation. I've so, so enjoyed this. So have I, Tony. It was quite a delight to get to talk about these things. As expected, we have a lot of sort of common intuitions, so it was very effortless. Yes, and I would love to actually read your translation of Chuangzi, and maybe we could have another conversation at some point. That would be great. I would love that. (laughs) Yes, I'd be fascinated to hear what you think of that. Well, thank you. And again, it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Same here. It's been a delight. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And until next time, be well. You too. Be well. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Brooke Zuporin is the Mircea Eliad Professor of Chinese Religion, Philosophy, and Comparative Thought at the University of Chicago's School of Divinity, and the author and translator of several books. And his latest that we've been talking about is his new translation, Tao De Jing. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.